culture wars. We think a lot about sustainability at the macro level in terms of policy, regulation and strategy and disclosure. But how important is it in corporate culture? Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I'm Head of Investments at Joe Hambro Capital Management and Regnan. My guest today is Alison Taylor. Alison is Clinical Professor at NYU Stern Business School and Director of Ethical Systems, whose mission, according to their website, is to transform the ethical practice of business. We have to admire the ambition. Alison, welcome to Organising the Future. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's a delight to be here. Yeah, it's a real pleasure talking to you again. I mean, our last conversation was very lively and certainly looking at your LinkedIn posts, you are a very consummate commentator on some of the big issues around sustainability, corporate culture and corporate ethics. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to our discussion today. Uh, yeah, me too. And, and you've just finished a book as well. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that and when that's uh, going to hit the, the bestseller list. Uh, well, thank you. I think bestseller list might be uh, a little bit over-egging it, but it is uh, due to be published uh, in January 2024. Um, it's coming out with Harvard Business Review Press. It is called Higher Ground, How Business Can Do the Right Thing in a Turbulent World. And what I'm really trying to attack and address is that um, I would argue we have, as a society, completely lost sight of what it means to be a good business. So it used to be back in the 20th century in the Milton Friedman era that we had the notion that as long as a business does not break the law, any decision to maximize profit is by definition ethically neutral. I don't think we are in that world today. We are clearly in the middle of a very fraught and interesting conversation about ESG and sustainability. Um, but I think as a result, we can no longer anchor the idea of what it means to be a good business to the notion of the law, but we're struggling to figure out where to anchor it. A lot of people argue that uh, it is uh, inappropriate to think of a business having values. Still, this is a Milton Friedman argument. Of course, only people can have values. People's values vary. They vary according to religion, culture, upbringing, psychology. So how and where might we think of a business positioning itself uh, in this very fraught world and how might a business find direction when it really feels as if everybody is yelling at businesses and saying they're either doing too much or not enough where can they figure out uh, how, uh, how to focus um, and how can they um, try to get alignment across these very uh, broad and fraught set of topics so that's what I'm trying to talk about uh, I cover a, a a very broad range of subjects. I have chapters on human rights, corruption, transparency, speaking up, culture, stakeholders, environmental and social priorities, leadership. Um, and so I'm trying to, uh, I guess, really spark a conversation and, and make an argument that uh, maybe we need to think about these ideas in slightly different ways. And that does seem, seem very timely, is it? to me appears as if cultural or societal norms are beginning to shift and you know whether it's Friedman or Adam Smith or John Stuart Mills they did talk about social norms ethical boundaries and then how those framed 
the, almost like the operating environment for the corporation and for business activities. In fact, my my last guest was from Client Earth and was who have just you know sued the directors of Shell, and he was arguing that the law is changing to reflect changing you know social norms backed by the science. So it's really interesting time we're in, and I always feel that Friedman's policies at the end of the 80s were adopted because we're having a, a change in social norms as much as geopolitical. So. Would you agree that we're at one of those turning points in the way that business is actually done? Yeah, I would. And I think, I mean, when I, t I teach the Milton Friedman famous 1970 article, I'm always very careful to place it in the context. And the historic context was that there had been efforts to regulate business on, on white collar crime during the 1960s. Those businesses had responded with corporate social responsibility programs that Friedman felt were a waste of shareholders' money and a distraction and, and um, you know, not, not the way to run a business. So it's really, really important, I think, to read that article in the context of, of the time and also to read that article understanding that capitalism in 1970 was really the US and Japan and to some extent Europe. And so to understand that Friedman's recommendations may have made sense uh, at that time and maybe make a little less sense or there are a lot more questions to ask when capitalism uh, is the dominant framework, uh, at least theoretically for most countries in the world, where businesses have globalized, where businesses have moved offshore to try and avoid regulation to try and avoid guardrails and where where business has uh, become much more involved in political influence and trying to put its thumb on the scale to design regulations uh, that are favorable to it. So I think uh, whatever we might say or not say about uh, Friedman's original position, I think we could probably agree that he did not anticipate um, the the way in which business would uh, get involved in the political process, and maybe his arguments would be more rigorous if we had that very sharp separation between business interests and political interests that don't exist in the real world. So we're now, I think, in this really uncomfortable space where we're not sure genuinely is ESG a way for businesses to anticipate the regulation that is coming? You've just talked about uh, the emergence of new environmental regulations. Or is it rather an effort to stall and distract from much needed societal oversight? And I think the answer may be both. Um, I am uh, focused on trying to make it more useful. But I think uh, we can learn a lot by asking ourselves what the dominant approach is to ESG management, to the way that ESG frameworks are being treated by corporations. And I think if we ask questions about what purpose these ideas serve, what they're doing for investors, what they're doing for corporations, what they're doing for everybody else, we can come up with some interesting and rather uncomfortable answers. Now, I know you write on organizational culture and you know, you're, you've told us about your book. Uh, I've just written a chapter of uh, a book, and that was enough for me. I don't really need to write the whole whole thing. But one of the things I fretted about in there was does you know disclosure alone does it become actually a fig leaf for inaction? You know, do we feel that if we just disclose certain metrics, then we've changed the world without actually changing anything at all? You know, how, how do you actually talk to companies about changing that? You know, the, the the, the real corporate culture to affect actual the real world outcomes is, is that something that you, you you've talked to them a lot about 
it's certainly something I think a lot about. So I think this question about disclosure is super fascinating, right? We have um, certainly the idea that you manage what you measure. We have certainly the idea that if we ask companies to disclose certain metrics and investors will then be able to evaluate those metrics and so will other stakeholders. We have this idea that it will then be much easier to hold those companies accountable. If you go on uh, the CDP's website, you will be told disclosure is wonderful for interacting with your stakeholders. It helps drive accountability and it helps drive value. And I think we can ask a very simple question, which is uh, if we tell companies that they need to disclose a certain set of information and that as a result, investors are going to score and evaluate and deploy capital uh, as a result of that information. I think uh, if we ask how companies are going to disclose as a result and how they're going to spin and portray that information, I think it's rather obvious they will try to persuade uh, to portray themselves uh, in the best light possible. I think we need to also ask why CDP, the Climate Disclosure Project, was founded in 2000. It is now 23 years later, and we are still arguing about what companies exactly should be required to disclose and what they shouldn't. We certainly haven't moved on to uh, the idea of requiring action. So um, I think between these things, um, uh, we start to see a picture that maybe disclosure is to at least some extent being treated as a substitute for action and that maybe we have ideas about the ability of society and investors to hold companies to account that aren't really reflected in reality. Um, I wrote an article a, a little while ago for Sustainable Views, the FT publication, where I compare corporate disclosure to calorie counts on menus. And there is a study showing that calorie Calorie counts on menus, which of course have become um, required in both the US and the UK for, for businesses of a certain size. Um, the effect they have uh, on individual consumption is about eight calories a day because we look at them um, and we maybe think, well, What's the point in ordering that salad, uh, given that it doesn't seem to have any fewer calories than that burger? And what we also do um, is we maybe order less sides, but more sugary drinks. And the overall impact uh, is not quite what we might um, have hoped. So uh, clearly, uh, company disclosures are, are much more complex than calorie counts on menus, but maybe carbon is a little bit like calories. Carbon doesn't tell us uh, the nutritional uh, value of a company's ESG efforts. And, and calorie counts don't tell us the nutritional value um, of the food we're eating. So um, so I think we have to we have to be much more critical and much more thoughtful about the way that transparency pressures uh, play out in general. Business disclosures are extremely complex and extremely reliant on context, even if the company is not deliberately trying to obfuscate. So maybe we have, uh, we're over-optimistic both about the power of disclosure to drive accountability um, and the power of stakeholders to understand what companies are doing from their disclosures um, and to drive change as a result. You mentioned right at the, the beginning of that, that piece that, um, that that famous phrase, if you can measure it, you can manage it, which is, off, is generally a misquote because people stop there, like they stop with uh, Friedman and his maximization of profit. Uh, and the full quote is, is about if you can measure it, 
you can manage it, but that doesn't mean what you measure has any value. And if by measuring it, you do more harm than good. They even get the attribution wrong. It's not Drucker, but uh, uh, Ridgeway back in 1956. It was a, crit a criticism of over-measurement. So it's really interesting that we, we, we don't even learn from the quotes that we use. They, uh, they get, they get uh, muddled up because the soundbite is far more important than the reality. That's so fascinating. Uh, my book can, uh, has a discussion about the bad apple metaphor. Um, so what, what happens after a corporate scandal, as I'm sure you will have noticed, Andrew, is that the, the CEO gets in front of the microphone and he says, this wasn't a systemic issue. This was just a couple of bad apples and just a couple of rogue employees. And this obviously is very self-serving. It suggests that there's no culture or leadership issue to address and that somebody in the organization just popped up out of nowhere nowhere one day and decided it was a good idea to pay a bribe. But very similarly, the notion of the bad apple in medieval times was, was used to describe cultural rot. It was used to describe the wider phenomenon of a bad apple rots the other apples and the risks of that. And gradually, um, over during the 20th century, we, we changed that phrase, we made that phrase morph to mean its opposite. So now it is used to say, if we just remove the bad person, the organization won't have a problem anymore. So very similar, the original uh, direction of the quote, the way that it was used, has now been flipped 180 on its head to serve the dominant narratives of our era. And I find that completely fascinating. One of the topics that I'm always interested in is incentives in the system, how they sort of tilt the playing field and shift behavior in the direction of the incentives. And sometimes those can be perverse incentives, for example, you know, around carbon, they can be opposite to the science, but they can be in geopolitical, you know, if you, could, you, know, if you set politically, if you like. And, you know, how do you think about incentives within leadership structures and corporate strategy? You know, do, do, should we be setting uh, ESG KPIs that are linked to executive remuneration, for example? There's been a lot of discussion about this. And uh, as you've probably seen, most companies seem to be stampeding into uh, setting um, uh, a range of ESG metrics. And I, I have to say, Andrew, I'm not particularly liking what I'm seeing. Uh, so I think there's a, a few things going on. Um, I think there is an overall tendency to put ESG issues into a sort of what I would call an undifferentiated bucket of ESG stuff. So the idea is you do materiality, you set ESG priorities, you set goals, you make those goals public, um, and then you kind of report against those goals. But I think it's important to note that, that an ESG issue is not in some other unique category of issue. Each ESG issue presents a company with some mix of risk, opportunity, and ethical imperative. If you can't tell the difference between a risk, an opportunity, and an ethical imperative, you're very unlikely to set good incentives. There's also a tendency to kind of divvy everything up. So because of this feeling companies have that they have to cover the full landscape of ESG issues, you tend to end up with a list of 30 goals and then a metric per goal. And that is uh, not the way to drive change. That is the way to drive fragmentation and confusion and make the company feel that this is um, not strategic. The other uh, question that we need to ask here is, should senior executives really be getting a bonus 
for something like hitting diversity goals in the senior leadership team or hitting their carbon reduction goals when that ought to be just part of running um, a good business. And then the final question we need to ask is that um, most, most ESG advocates, as far as I know, uh, tend to argue that ESG programs correlate with long-term shareholder value. So if we actually believe that, if we actually believe that meeting these targets will provide more value over the long term, then surely all we would need to do is set the senior executives long-term goals um, and make sure they are incentivized on the long-term performance of the company we shouldn't need to set some kind of separate goal so um i i think where this ends up um is is with a situation uh like mcdonald's so mcdonald's set uh, a range of uh human capital metrics for its senior leadership team. It tied those metrics to 15% of the bonus for that senior leadership team. One of those metrics did relate to the, the diversity uh, in the senior leadership team. That all sounds great until you read contemporary reports uh, that McDonald's was alleged to have um, redlined its black franchisees and given them less desirable locations. And so then we have rather a more complicated picture about diversity. And so what I would say is, if you're going to really make diversity a strategic issue, you can't just give um, a senior executive bonus for the composition of the senior leadership team. You need to think about di a diversity imperative across everything you're doing, across your supply chain, across your franchise selection, across your values and your ethics guardrails in your compliance program, your HR program, all of it. And you would need to think about how you would make the organization treat that as a strategic priority. And for that reason, um, I think it is a very bad idea to have dozens and dozens of strategic priorities for ESG. I think you should identify ideally one, no more than three, and then really um, think about your incentives, think about your goals, think about what you're directing your entire workforce to do. And I think that the way that uh, incentives um, and goals are being designed now speaks volumes. It speaks volumes about um, how companies are not really treating this as seriously um, as they say they are. And it also speaks to this, um, this tendency for sort of mimetic isomorphism, which is, um, the tendency of companies in the same sector to copy each other. And this is what I think is happening on ESG uh, metrics. Everyone is kind of crowding together for warmth, trying to tell the same story to investors. And the result is something that's treated as a sort of tick box exercise of ESG stuff and has absolutely nothing to do with either competitive advantage or setting meaningful ethical guardrails and meaningful values. So we try to do everything and we end up doing nothing. Yes, I think Professor Alec Edmonds talked about ESG is everything and ESG is nothing special. And I think you sort of articulated that very well. And I think the gaming of the system is one thing that I worry about. I can remember looking up a company I'd never heard of before and it claimed to be an energy solutions company. And the first words you saw when you logged, logged on to its website was ESG oblique sustainability. It was like they, they couldn't make up their mind which one we liked the most. They put both on and they yeah. were an, a Canadian tar sands 
yeah, oil, oil, uh, yeah, oil tar sand. So, you know, not the cleanest of companies. So it was just really fascinating to, they, they sort of knew what companies wanted to be. They were, uh, investors wanted them to be, or what they wanted them to say. So in solutions, you know, is always a favorite word that companies now use as well. We're sol solving the world's problems. So there is definitely a gaming of the system out there. Now, one of the things I said to my very first guest was, you can't use the acronym ESG, and you've used it a lot there. And I, 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 and I think it's, it's part of the problem, isn't it? We talk about ESG as a thing, something tangible in its own right, rather than this complex, nuanced series of individual issues around the environment, around societal impacts and consequences and the way that companies govern themselves you know governance is a, is a noun the other two are adjectives so we even ma managed to get a, a rather weird grammatical melange going on there uh, and you know it, it it's, it's fascinating to see how politicized an acronym has become you know um, so yeah. are we talking here about woke capitalism anti-woke capitalism or are they both completely irrelevant uh, constructs that are just being used for other purposes Oh, gosh, there's so many questions in there. So um, the first thing I would say is uh, I agree with Alex Edmonds that ESG is both very important and nothing special, that the the way to think about this is uh, intangible value. Um, and I believe Alex always, or also agrees with me about designing incentives it ought to be correlated with um, long-term goals, and you might not necessarily um, need something separate. Uh, you've also talked about the the problematic ESG um, uh, concept and the, the roping of these terms together in a way that isn't, uh, strictly speaking, appropriate. My understanding is that when the ESG term was coined at the UN in 2004, 2005, that the G was actually shoved in at the last minute because there was uh, more evidence on the business case for, for good governance uh, than the other two areas. And I think given that the original impetus, given that the original thinking on, on sustainable business is about helping companies manage their negative externalities, their environmental, social externalities, governance doesn't really fit. I would tend to argue that no one actually knows or agrees on what the G of ESG is. It is the ultimate um, shape-shifting concept. So we may certainly see... <clears throat> excuse me, the dissolution of the acronym uh, over time. I hope we will see more differentiated strategies. Um, but I think your, your final question, which is, is woke capitalism really a thing, really not a thing? It's certainly a very convenient political concept for Republicans in the US at the moment. But I would also argue that Republicans are responding to something very, very real, which is the increased tendency of business leaders and corporate leaders in the US to take public stands and take public positions on contentious social and political issues. So <clears throat> the example I always give is um, the huge transformation between 2014 and 2021. In 2014, there was uh, a police killing of a teenager in, in Ferguson, Missouri. He was left on the street for hours, Michael Brown. That sparked the first Black, Black Lives Matter protests. It sparked the, the birth of that movement. At that time, corporate leaders would not touch this issue with a barge pole. Virtually no one made a public statement. Certainly no one went to the protests. Certainly nobody thought it was the role of a corporation to speak up on a, on a police killing like that. 
by 2021, we have multiple CEOs of major companies giving their personal opinion on the George Floyd murder verdict. That is an incredible shift in norms and corporate practice in only eight years. So whether it is um, police violence, systemic racism, gun control, immigration, climate change, abortion rights, we have seen this shift in the US context between this position, this sort of Michael Jordan position, Republicans buy sneakers too, we have no interest in getting involved in these contentious conversations, to much, much more willingness to use a voice um, and take polarized positions. Now, how much has that got to do with ESG? Arguably very little, but what I think it does do is, is describe a cultural phenomenon that I think Republicans are, are calculating. An average middle-of-the-road voter might hear all this discourse and think, well, now you mention it, Coca-Cola has got really woke and annoying recently, and maybe I'll vote Republican. So in that sense, I think they're on to something with a fair amount of political capital, and I think they are describing something going on the problem is that doesn't have uh, much to do with ESG investment and material risk um, as, as, as practitioners would think about and describe it. So this really speaks to the, the sort of shape-shifting way that ESG is being treated. It's a little bit like the blind man and the elephant. People use the term in an enormous uh, variety of different ways, um, and that is uh, not always very helpful in, in clarifying what we're actually arguing about. Yes, it feels sometimes as if it's become a social obligation being placed on investors. And when you think about the functioning of markets, it might not be an obligation that they're best always best suited to to take on with the profit motive. And, you know, one can argue that, you know, a market is an amoral entity. It doesn't have a, a you know, it is reflecting, you know, it's a weighing scales. You know, talking of you know, economists, we'll go to Keynes this time. It, it's weighing up the sort of... Uh, the, the positive and negative views out there. But also, in many ways, it might have been, might be a, a construct of the last 40 years of subcontracting the governance of government to the private sector. If you believe the private sector is the solution to everything, then it becomes a logical extension that some of these social issues are going to be uh, tackled through the private sector. So, it, I mean, perversely, it could be, you know, a, 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 the final evolution of uh, freedomism that it actually forces the moral imperative back onto investors because there's nobody else left who seems to care. Oh, interesting. I don't know that I'm quite that optimistic. I mean, I certainly think. I certainly find these arguments that are made by sustainability advocates and practitioners that um, only business has the scale and reach to solve society's problems, therefore it should. That seems uh, rather a shallow argument that requires um, a little bit of further exploration. One of the things I, I find quite disturbing, and I see it particularly in the classroom with the undergrads, um, is that we now have this notion, we no longer trust politicians, we no longer trust elections, we no longer think governments have the capacity to solve our problems, and so we've turned to corporations. But we seem to have started to expect corporations to sort of 
serve a political role. We talk about corporations representing their stakeholders. You know, they, they, they express their employees' voice. Employees want companies to stand up. Therefore, companies should do this. Um, I think it's important to, um, to, to think about that in the context of political involvement. And are we, are we naive? Have we, have we put in corporate pressures on corporations to solve and rep, uh, more importantly, represent the interests of their stakeholders in a way they are fundamentally not set up to do. I see this also in terms of internal management. I see this um, idea that a corporation should run more like a democracy, that employees want a say in kind of key decisions, that leaders should be trying to somehow gather and represent the views of, of, of what's going on in the organization. I think that's extremely dangerous. There is no mechanism um, and no thinking that really uh, allows us to do that. And, and where it tends to end up, I think, is leaders responding apologetically to the loudest subset of their stakeholders. And in some cases, further distorting the political process, further generating um, anti-ESG uh, backlash and kind of blinding us from uh, looking at the core problems and having a more grown up conversation about what is the appropriate role for business, what is the appropriate role for government um, and how can we have healthier environmental, social, political and business systems overall. And that comes back again to that point we were discussing earlier, incentives in the system. If, if, exactly. you know, if governments aren't setting the right incentives, then expecting the private sector to behave in the right way, according to whose definition of right is, a, is an open question, is, is, a, well, it's quite, it's quite a, is a very large step that might not actually work out quite as they anticipate. And you, 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 you mentioned about stakeholder um, uh, management there. It's interesting in Germany, for example, where it's not uncommon to have worker representation on the board, yet you have had some of the biggest corporate governance scandals in the last decade. So just by having that you know, stakeholder representation doesn't re ensure the outcomes that it's often you know, represented as. And we, we I, I talked that's... there a bit. Sorry, yeah, go on. No, I, I think that's right. I think there's no silver bullet on corporate governance. Um, and again, I, I, I think it's pretty fascinating the way that we um, have separated out um, notions of, of ethics and compliance from notions of ESG. Indeed, uh, barely five minutes passes without a, a famous ESG ad advocate insistently out there saying that ESG has absolutely nothing to do with ethics, that any conflation of sustainability and ethics is a misunderstanding. Um, and I, I, I find that a really uh, fascinating argument. Of course, I understand where these people are coming from. They're trying to differentiate ESG investing today from socially responsible investing in the 20th century, which accepted lower returns. They're trying to say ESG strategies don't go along with, with lower returns. But um, I think it misunderstands and misrepresents uh, the grounds on which something becomes a material risk to a corporation, whether it is uh, Ukraine or all these mining companies in Brazil causing uh, all these disasters or the social 
impact um, of, of, of social media or um, the oil and gas industry. I mean, I think a lot of the time what's driving all of this is that we have become much more concerned about corporate negative externalities. So to try to, to remove the ethical component, to remove the societal concerns from that concept, uh, seems to me to muddy the waters rather than clarifying them, which is what I think the people making these arguments are attempting to do. And if you look at some of those historic externalities, quite often and generally, they ultimately become internalized into business models through lower de demand. You know, asbestos, it took nearly 100 years for asbestos to actually br almost bring down Lloyd's of London, you know, after the first you know, medical report. But it was an externality that once people began to really appreciate how serious the medical conditions were associated with its use, it became internalized, companies went bankrupt, and it had a, a knock-on effect. Tobacco you know, sales are beginning to you know, turn down. We will begin to see that in, in plenty of other areas. So an, an externality can become an internalized, you know, factor uh, uh, in finance. It can be lower demand, and that's ultimately where it, it, it manifests itself. But the big question becomes when, and is it supported by incentives in the system? You know, tobacco perversely became, got, when they were sued, it, it reduced barriers to, uh, increased barriers to entry. Nobody came into the sector, reduced competition. In a funny sort of way, we, uh, carbon taxes might very well be in the favor of some of the biggest oil companies who can actually be, remain profitable for longer by uh, creating those barriers to entry. So we, so again, show some of these, uh, these examples of perverse incentives in the system. Absolutely. And I think I, I love your asbestos example. Um, it shows that, yes, your impacts, your negative impacts probably will at some point kick back and become your risks, but not in a linear, predictable way. The question is when. And so I think this speaks to another challenge with ESG. We talk about uh, selecting issues on the basis of proven financial impact, but by the time there's a proven financial impact, it's often too late to do something about it. Um, and we also um, we also talk about um, reputational risk. So a lot of the the business case for caring about ESG is is, is this reputation perception argument that uh, these issues will cause uh, problems. You know, if you have some big lawsuit, there'll be a reputational cost that will hit your share price. Again, if we wait for something to become a reputational risk, it's usually too late to do something about it. So, um, you know, it, it is not, I think, uh, useful or predictive to think about these things. I think it's more useful to start with your impacts um, and to think about um, when those might manifest, when those will kick back and become your risks, than just saying, uh, this, is, uh, this is simply about material issues for investors and there's no need to talk about politics and there's no need to talk about shifting social norms. That's just clearly not true. I always had a problem with the concept of maximization, you know, maximization of profits, because when you think of maximizing the outputs from, from any system, that tends to mean you're operating at maximum stress levels and you risk a fracturing of that system in the future. So even the, the concept of maximization is about maximizing risks as well associated with that, which has longevity mm. you know, problems. So I, I think even, even that original Friedman language had a, a flaw in it because of not thinking about that system and uh, how systems become stressed under a maximization utility. Anyway, we're going off into slightly different tangent, but... Oh, well, 
Well, I, I, I would argue, Andrew, that uh, stakeholder capitalism is equally partial and flawed when it comes to thinking about the system, because specifically it argues we need to balance stakeholder interests and solve stakeholder problems. There is nothing that I'm aware of inherent in stakeholder capitalism that says, and what's the limit there? When will a corporation's actions be enough? How should a corporation manage the trade-offs if it can't do everything at once? There is no conceptual limit of here's when a corporation should stop trying to make the world better because it's interfering with the actions of government. We're just sort of saying if your stakeholder cares about it, you ought to be doing something about it. An even weirder idea in stakeholder capitalism is that your employees are stakeholders. Well, are they or are your employees the company? And so we get into this idea of companies engaging with their stakeholders. Well, companies don't engage in anyone, with anyone. People engage with people. So if we're saying employees are stakeholders and they're engaging with other stakeholders, we're very, very quickly somewhere extremely conceptually weird <laughs> that no one seems to talk about. Yes, at best, I would think that it's about a dynamic tension between your environmental consequences, your social impact, and your ability to generate sustainable long-term financial returns. There is no equality in that. There, it is a tension, and it, it will ebb and flow according to exogenous influences. Everything from COVID to inflation to war changes that incentive structure, changes that influence, and you have to best manage that in the context of what's given to you uh, under an ever-changing and evolving set of circumstances. One thing I did want to ask you about uh, was about corporate engagement. You know, this is the uh, the, the newest uh, form, of, I guess, of ESG. It's, it's not new at all because we've been engaging uh, with companies for decades about financial performance and the, and the governance of a company in, for, uh, for shareholder interests. Now, a lot of the way that uh, engagement is framed is around environmental and social matters, you know, modern slavery, you know, gender diversity, you know, ethical behavior. You know, there's a whole range of topics. I think, you know, the average asset manager, according to Influence Map, now signs up to 24 initiatives that they're, they're saving the world on and they engage on that and they have to change and you know, the report on the material changes they've created. How do you think about corporate engagement and its effectiveness? Do you think that there's a danger that we're sort of engagement washing? I mean, I certainly think what you've described, which is here a bunch of 40 frameworks and network uh, uh, and um, reporting uh, oversight bodies, and here's how you need to show progress, is uh, a sign that investors aren't actually doing the engagement work, but are looking for uh, quick knee-jerk proxies uh, to, to measure progress. So, you know... Um, I like the idea um, of investor engagement because at the end of the day, all this stuff is a process of change. We, we tend to have this conversation about ESG being about sorting good companies from bad companies and scoring and deploying capital accordingly. Well, what we really want, surely, is for dirty chemical companies to become cleaner. We would like oil companies to transition. We would like to still have the minerals that we need for the energy transition. We would like 
positive change rather than necessarily saying that bad companies shouldn't exist. So I think um, there's an enormous amount of work that a sensible investor can do there, but it involves getting very deep into strategy and very, very deep into um, a conversation with that company. It involves deep industry knowledge. It involves being able to get to the point. It involves not being kind of fooled by all the reporting that uh, frameworks it involves not relying on those. So um, I think there is a lot of work that a sensible investor can do. But again, a lot of the discourse, a lot of the um, ideas out there kind of weigh against that. Maybe an even more interesting point that's sort of implicit in your um, question is whether we can achieve stakeholder capitalism goals just using the full force of investors that we we have the idea it's about shareholders versus other stakeholders we tend to talk about shareholders if we're talking about carl icahn but it's it's worth remembering that anyone with a pension is also a shareholder different shareholders have different agendas different time horizons different values and so maybe if we just made shareholder engagement and investor engagement work better we wouldn't need to overcomplicate the situation with all these stakeholder capitalism metrics. So uh, that's a debated point. Clearly, not everybody has a pension. I think the, the statistics in the US are quite damning in terms of who's really um, involved uh, in, in, in those kind of economic activities. But still, I think worth mentioning that um, there's, there's some data showing that, that shareholders actually do vote in line with public opinion um, and, and that maybe if we had better shareholder representation and better disclosure and better understanding of what's going on, we don't necessarily need to throw Milton Friedman out with the bathwater, but we could uh, have a more um, effective and strategic approach just by doing that better. And um, you in there, there was one point I, I I picked up on immediately is our role as investors is to reflect our clients' views as much as our own. And, and I find it quite fascinating in my long career now, the topics that we are expected to talk about. And it's not just whether we can change them or not, but the mere fact that we are raising these issues, that these are conversations at trustee meetings with private private wealth managers, you know, they are topics that come up all the time. So, so they are having an influence. They are voicing people's opinions, that more societal wide issue. And there's one, one sort of last point I'd end on is that the one certainty about ESG is that bad governance tends to destroy shareholder value. And it's almost certainly the most badly governed companies are going to be the ones that don't think enough about environmental impact and social consequences in running their businesses appropriately and ethically. Well, there you go. One, I mean, and you've just made a powerful case for why ESG is to do with ethics in the end. We can talk about its correlation with shareholder value and material risk as much as we like. But what you're really saying is a governance structure that doesn't care about environmental and social impact and ethical guardrails and ethical obligations and the good of society is not going to be driving value via ESG. So uh, to me, that kind of closes the case on whether ESG has anything to do with ethics. <laughs> Alison, thank you very much for your time. And of course, thank you to our listeners. Organising the Future is available on Spotify, Amazon and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to be sure to catch every episode. If you would like to learn more about investment opportunities at Johambro Capital Management or at Regnan, please do contact your representative. 
Details about us, about our funds and our approach to investment are on our website. Just search for J.O. Hambro in your favourite browser.